Anderson, and welcome to X Church. If you're brand new, I just want to say hi. My name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor. We are so glad you're here. And I also want to let you know you stepped in something today. You stepped into something today. Let me clarify. Uh, if you are new, let me just let you know um, you're catching us in the middle of what is a, a really complicated series. Uh, you know, no pun intended, as we're calling it, it's complicated. Because we're trying to address some of the most uh, controversial subjects right now that are being talked about in our culture. And if, you, um, if you're just new stepping in, can I just encourage you, you might walk out of here going, oh my gosh, that was so much more than I imagined. I was just trying to go to church today. I, I wanna invite you, maybe if you wouldn't, just go back and watch at least week one. Week one, I talk about why we're doing this series. And I, as a pastor, I just recognize that our culture is really um, clear and very loud about what it believes when it comes to all of these controversial subjects. And we've been talking, if you're new with us, we've been talking about uh, culture wars, we talked about politics, we talked about abortion, we talked about prejudice and racism. And today we're just gonna continue on that. We've got two weeks left in this. And I just want you to know my heart. My heart is not to be controversial. My heart is not to, uh, to cause strife in any of us. But it is really, as a pastor, I feel the weight of really making sure our community understands these conversations in light of scripture and what does it look like for us to live like Jesus and to have God's heart during this cultural moment. And so that's why we're walking through all of these. Now today, as we um, get ready to, to deal with a very sensitive subject, I, I've just got two quick warnings on the front end that I wanna give, okay? First um, warning is this, that Today's content is absolutely PG-13, at the very least, okay? And the reason why I say that is because sometimes, and I can't see everybody, uh, sometimes parents say, oh, I want to bring my kids with me to worship because they just love the music and want to worship in the main adult experience with me. And then if you did that today, let me just tell you right now, you're going to have a lot of things to answer for when you get home. <laughs> and so I would strongly encourage you to put your kids in our kids' ministry and take advantage of that, Okay? On top of that, it's gonna be not only be difficult for them, but possibly for some of you, and that is that today is quite possibly gonna be the longest message you'll ever hear me preach. So if you had lunch plans, cancel them. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think it'll feel long because of what we're gonna talk about, but there is a lot to uncover, and I really wanna make sure I do this topic. It is such a sensitive one with great justice. And so today, I wanna have a very candid and honest conversation about sexuality. So let's talk about sex, and let's talk about sex in the way our culture sees sex first. I think if you were to look at all the different mediums of culture today, it's quite clear what the message is for all of us regarding sex, right? What's the message? Um, sex exists for your pleasure, and if it feels good, you can do it with whoever and however you want to do it. It's fine, right? This is the basic overall message. You can find it on TikTok, Instagram, any movie, any TV show today, award show today. The main message is that sex is to be enjoyed and it's all about pleasure and just feels good, do it. In fact, I think as we look even in our universities and in that kind of demographic, what you'll find is most promoted when it comes to sex is what's called the hookup culture. Right, we're probably familiar with the hookup culture. What is the hookup culture? It's you can hook up with anybody you want and it doesn't matter and no strings attached, right? 
In fact, the overarching message that you will find in colleges and universities today, okay, is this idea that you, maturity, when it comes to your sexual identity, is to be able to have sex with anybody you want to with no strings attached and no emotional attachment. Like, like that is the message, and that's why we've had apps like Tinder and other ones that have just made it easy for you to just find and kind of as long as you have two consenting adults, why not? What's the harm? It's not going to hurt, right? If you're not going to hurt anybody else and they both consent, what's the big deal? It's just sex. This, this is the overall message today. And if you, um, if you spend any time with universities, colleges today, and some of you are in that age where you are, then you might already be aware of this. But I, I wasn't aware of something. But a lot of our colleges and universities today celebrate something known as Sex Week. I don't know if you ever heard of this. Sex Week. And it's a lot of colleges where they take one week and they promote any form of sexuality you can imagine. They bring in guest speakers. They hold events and seminars on campus all throughout the week so that you can get a real education on sex. Now, I was reading about this, and I didn't know Sex Week was even a thing, to be honest. Had no idea. And as I started looking at which schools and universities are doing Sex Week, you know what I found out? I found out that Ohio State University is one of the leading. OSU, yeah. It's one of the leading universities that, that leads the way when it comes to Sex Week. And uh, so I thought, I've got to see this. And so I... I started uh, looking into and found out there's a website. I don't know the exact. It's like osusexweek.com. Some of you are going to look it up. You don't need to do that. But it just gives the schedule for the last several years. And so I'm reading. This is my research. I'm reading what in the world are we having events and teaching during sex week, which at OSU is always around Valentine's Day week. And uh, so while I was reading, I came across some of the seminars, the events that you could attend. Let me show you a few of them, right? Uh, at OSU Sex Week, you could take a, a seminar on learning the ropes, intro into bondage. So if you want to know the right way to tie someone up, you can learn that at Ohio State University. All right. Here's another one. Have your cake and eat it too. A panel on ethical non-monogamy. So if you want to know how to have the kind of open relationships or how do you cheat fairly? How do you, or how do you have lots of relationships with different people? We're going to tell you how to do that. Or this one was fascinating. Debunking abstinence-only sex eds. And when I read the description of this one, here's what it said. It said, We're gonna, we want to talk about these uh, different groups that teach abstinence-only sex ed, okay, because we believe it is detrimental to the health of our youth today. I was like, whoa, this is what we're, this is the real classes that your kids are taking when they're going to college, right? And, and so when, when you look at all of this in light of culture, here's what you get, this idea that sex is just physical. It's just physical. Two consenting adults doesn't matter. It's just physical. Now, if you were here um, a couple weeks ago, I talked about something on the board, which I'm going to get to. Uh, the week we did abortion, I talked about a theory that I believe has led us to this view in our Western culture. And it's known as personhood theory, if you were here. We talked about where this theory came from. Rene Descartes, 
okay, who really proposed this idea hundreds of years ago, and it's really taken hold in Western thought today, and it's basically this idea that you are made up of two separate substances. We looked at the two-story building kind of perspective, right? There's the mind, or some would say the soul, someone would say this is where values and morals are all created in the mind, and then there's the material, the lower level, this is the body, this is the physical. This is where the fact, the materialistic worldview lives. That, that you're made up of mind and body and they're separate. And, and so what do we understand today when it comes to sexuality? We understand you can do whatever you want with your body and it won't affect your mind. You can do whatever you want with your body because there's no morals connected to it. Why? Because morals and values live in the upper story. And oh, by the way, morals and values are a personal thing, but it's also a cultural thing. And the morals and values of our society continue to shift, continue to change as this changes. But this, this does not change, right? This is the view. Here's what we said about a personhood theory. I basically said this. It was a dual view of you, right? Personhood theory, two separate parts of you. Here's the problem. The problem is that a lot of people in our culture today that are growing up believing that sexuality is just part of expressing yourself and it's about having fun and enjoying each other physically. There's no emotional attachment. The reality is a lot of people are finding out that's not true. There are a lot of college students that are um, being told this and then when they're seeing their therapist and they're saying, why is it that I'm struggling so much? Why is it that I, I just went for hookups, but why is emotionally am I messed up? It's because to use like an old, and I hate this, but cliche phrase, you can't put a condom on your heart, is the fact is that we're, we're saying that maybe we're not split, that maybe it does affect. And so what I, wanna, I want us to recognize something today is that the cultural sexual ethic today is vastly different than the biblical sexual ethic, okay? They're not even close. They're not even close at all. And so what I wanna do um, to begin with is, is I want to explore the biblical view, the scriptural view of sexuality. And here's why I think this is important that we do this today is because a lot of people, I think, have this preconceived idea when it comes to sex is that um, somehow that God is against it or the Bible is against it. Um, sometimes at the church, the message has been given so much, especially to those who aren't married. It's like sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. We tell it to our kids, we want to have sex is bad, sex is bad. And then they get married and we're like, well, okay, now it's not bad. Now it's good, now it's good, now it's good. But they're all so confused. And, 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 and so we don't have a really good understanding of the purpose for sex. And so in order for us to understand what sex was intended to be, we first need to ask the question, what's the purpose for sex? And if you're a, a follower of Jesus, then you probably hold this view that God created it all. And if God created it all, that means God created sex. And if God created sex, then there must be an important purpose or design to it. So whenever I wanna ask the question of purpose, here's what I like to do. I wanna go back to the beginning, the origin. And so if you got a Bible with you, I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to end up in the New Testament, but we're going to start in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we get this account where God had given Moses. Here's what I did to start all of it. When God was creating everything. When he gets down to mankind, 
There's a few verses I want us to look at today, verse 27 and 28. This is what it says. It says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and do what? Everybody say this out loud. And be fruitful and be fruitful and have sex. Can I just point out the obvious? This is kind of, isn't it cool that the very first command God ever gave humans was to have sex? Okay, it says, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Okay, I want us to at least get on the same page and recognize that we're going to talk about the purpose of sex, but please understand this. When God created all of living creatures and all of life forms here on the earth, um, he created everything to reproduce. You can see that in Genesis 1. It's really important, okay? Everything, including plant life. What's fascinating is that there are two basic ways in which uh, um, life reproduces. There's asexual and sexual, right? There, there are some of life forms, including some animals, that can reproduce by themselves, asexual. And so I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, okay. For some reason, God felt it necessary for humans to reproduce sexually. He could have made it so that humans reproduce asexually. I thought to myself, why did God make it so that humans reproduce sexually? I think there could be a variety of reasons. One, maybe he created this masterful genetic code and he wanted to see creatively what would happen. I think another reason why that he may have done that is because he knows how difficult it is to raise children that he's thinking it's going to take two of you all to do it. Hello? Now listen, if you're here and you're a single parent, you have my utmost respect because listen, um, I think even a single parent would say this is like more than one person really should, right? It's hard. I think God understood that. That's why I think there was sexual reproduction so that there were two. So what do we find in Genesis is the purpose of sex. Let me show you what I believe. There's a couple things. The purpose of sex, the first one I would say is this. Sex is for procreation. If you want to know why God first created sex, we can see Genesis 1, the very first command, was to fill the earth. The earth was empty when God started. He says, you got to fill the earth, right? And so we see sex was intended for procreation, not what culture says, which is just pleasure. Okay? Now, is sex pleasurable? Yeah. But I believe that's because it's a gift from God. Now, why in the world? I want to ask this question. I like to get us to think a little bit, right? Why would God make sex pleasurable? By the way, God made sex. He made it pleasurable. Why in the world would God make sex pleasurable? Here, here's what I, this is the way my mind works. I don't know about you, and you have a lot of theories. We all got different theories. But I'm thinking to myself, what way could I convince these humans to reproduce after the very first humans went through it? I'm thinking about this. Okay, how do I convince these humans to make it through 40 weeks of gestational period, deal with all the pain that goes with actually delivering a child, all of the blowouts, all of the toddler t uh, season where they're just rebellious little heathens, or all the years that you have to develop and raise kids so that hopefully one day they reach adulthood and you can send them out on their own hoping they don't boomerang back and live in your basement. 
See, I think the moment humans did that, they would have been like, nah, not for us. And I think, I think God, look at it and go, I, I, how am I going to keep them interested in having kids? Oh, I know. I'll make it one of the most pleasurable things you can find on earth. I know what I'll do. And so here's what God did. God created the orgasm. Yep, I said it. God did. Yep. Amen. Let's pray. We can go home. God not only did that, but God put a biological clock in a lot of women. Right? What better way to get the two to come together than for the woman that goes, I just want to have a baby. And the guy's like, I just want to have sex. It works. We, we see that God first created sexual reproduction for the goal of procreation. Now, I, I want to say that there are probably some of you here that maybe you've wanted to have kids. And we see those stories through the Bible and haven't been able to. Or maybe there's some that are married, maybe a different point, and it's, and it's not for that. There is another purpose for sex. And so I want to say, I think generally speaking, God created sex for procreation. But there's another purpose that I think is just as important, and that is this. Sex is for marital partnership. This is also significant, and we find this in Genesis as well. If you know the, the narrative in Genesis 2, when God created mankind, he puts this man in the garden, and he looks down, and he said, everything I made was so good, except this guy alone. It's not working. And so he said, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And so you probably know the, the story, right? He, he puts him, you know, he takes a long nap, but God gives him general anesthesia, and he kind of puts him under, does a little surgery, takes out one of his ribs. You got plenty. You won't miss that one. Takes it. I think God wanted the genetic material, so he took the genetic material, and all of a sudden he fashioned and he formed a woman who was different. And he brought her to him. I want to show you. It's kind of a wedding gift. This is what Genesis 2, verse 23 and 24 shows us. Look, it says the, when God brings the woman to him, the man said, this is now bone of my bones. Remember, she was taken out of him. And flesh of my flesh, she looked just like him. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's what that means. By the way, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become what? Say it out loud. They become one flesh. Okay, in this perspective, what we need to see is that when God created mankind and he created different genders, which, by the way, we're going to talk about next week. It's a very important conversation. Please come back for that. When God created mankind, here's what he did. He took something out of the man and put it into the woman so that instead of being whole, he doesn't feel whole without her. And when they come together, it's actually bringing back together the wholeness that once was. And so in this picture, we get God giving this first man a gift, a wife. And this is the way we understand the scripture, a wife. And it says the, the two become one. This is really important. They become one flesh. Not only biologically did God create them so that their bodies can come together and create oneness, but this is more than just in the physical. Here's what we know. It creates relational intimacy. Anybody that's ever had sex knows this. This, this is not just a physical thing. But it's also an emotional thing. It's a spiritual thing. That there is something that bonds two people together, maybe more than anything else, when they come together and have sex. Here's what is fascinating to me, is that it, this is something that Scripture gives us thousands of years ago. 
And you know what we're finding out today in our science? Our science today just seems to confirm what scripture was teaching thousands of years before. In, in fact, um, you may not be familiar with what happens in your brain. Most people don't think about that during sex. But there are two neurochemicals that get released in a man and a woman when they have sex that really does something interesting. I wanna, I wanna show you what they are. These two chemicals are known as oxytocin and vasopressin. Oxytocin and vasopressin. These are chemicals that get released in the brain. Now, the, the way we first found out about kind of oxytocin and what it's known for today, uh, maybe you've ever heard oxytocin, sometimes it's referred to as the cuddle chemical. The cuddle chemical. What we first understood about oxytocin is that it was significant in women's brains. And that it was released, here's the two times that we knew for sure that it was released and it made a big difference, was it was released at childbirth and it's released at breastfeeding. Two times that this chemical is released. And you know what we found? That's why they call it the cuddle chemical is because when a woman gives birth, there is a bond that that woman has with her children that is also chemical. It's not just DNA, but there's something in their brain that bonds them together. This is why it's hard to explain what a mother's bond is with her child. It's because there's chemicals that are going off that create this attachment. Not only that, but also breastfeeding, which is another moment of attachment. But the chemical gets released, and it creates a bond. There's a bond that happens. Any of you women probably know exactly what I'm talking about, especially if you're a mom, right? Here's what they discovered. Oxytocin and vasopressin are released in men and women when they have sex. That, that it's like the emotional glue between partners is actually in the brain. It's chemicals that are released. And so oxytocin is more significant for women, but they said vasopressin is more significant for men. What vasopressin does in neurochemical during sex that is released is that men feel a protective nature toward the one they're connected with. In some sense, actually go so far as possessive. And so what happens, here's what I want you to see, is that God actually created us during sex to bond chemically. Physically, chemically, this is why so many people don't understand that even when they're not married, but they're going around and they're having all these different sexual partners, that they're actually connecting with them on a much deeper level than just the physical, which is why I would say that this is actually a lie. The idea that it's just physical does not bear out in reality. What we understand is that it's actually far more than just physical. It creates an emotional bond, it connects us together. And so when you look at sex according to scripture, and I know we just kind of quickly looked at that, I, I would boil down to just this thought, and I, and I wanna put it up. This is what I think scriptural view of sexuality is. Is that sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed in the commitment of marriage for the purpose of having children and building a lifelong marital bond that benefits the entire family that God created sex for a very specific purpose. And the fact that we can enjoy it is a gift from God. And it leads us to create these family bonds. And I know some of you maybe, even without the family and the kids part, it creates marital intimacy and a bond lifelong that it matters. It just matters. Now this is like a traditional scriptural view of sexuality. 
But here's the thing. As our culture has continued to progress, our culture is constantly moving and progressing. Here's what we have to recognize, that there are a lot of people that say, I don't fit within this framework of sexuality. This is what we see today culturally. It's a progression. And I think this is what has led to a tension that exists between the church and our culture today. When it comes to sexuality, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's absolutely gonna be a tension. There's gonna be a tension between the way it is celebrated, the way it is marketed, the way it is promoted in our culture, and what the Bible is gonna say about sexuality. In fact, you, you can kind of see the tone that culture has taken toward the church when it comes to some of these traditional values, right? Um, virginity until you're married is laughed at. That's laughable. You, you need to experiment. You, you need to try it out. How do you know you're sexually compatible? You need to do, and all the meanwhile, whenever we do that, we're actually giving a piece of our emotional life and spirituality. We're giving a piece to every single one of those people. And we wonder why we don't feel whole today in our culture, okay? We also see this growing uh, trend and progression toward all different uh, formats of sexuality, sexual identity, pansexual, bisexual, gay, lesbian, okay, all of these different forms of sexual identity continue to move as long as society continues to progress. In fact, I came across a poll that I wanna show you here in a moment. Um, there was a, a poll that Gallup, very well-known research company, that, that kind of tracks people when it comes to all these things, including sexuality. And I came across this um, poll that talked about Americans and sexuality and I want to show you how this progression is moving in our culture today. Um, here's what they noticed. In 2012, when they did their survey, 3.5% of our population identified as LGBT. Okay? That's not fitting in the traditional view. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans. Okay, this, this view. And, and I want to note, this is, again, a survey that they do of thousands of people trying to represent the whole country. I know that these aren't going to be exact numbers. But that was in 2012. Less than a decade later, it has doubled. 7.1% identify as LGBT. So what do we, we see an increase in people saying, I, I don't fit within this traditional view of sexuality. I found this interesting. Of the 7.1%, the people that identify as LGBT, 57%, the largest percent, say they're bisexual, which means that they are attracted to both genders, okay, male and female. All right, now this is the stat that kind of blew me away. Because for a lot of the older generations, things have been pretty static. Millennial started to move up a little bit in the last decade. But for Generation Z, the ones who are in college right now, it is skyrocketing. In 2017, 10.5% of Gen Z identified as LGBT. Four years later, 20.8% identified as LGBT. What does that mean? That means the youngest generation that's now reaching adulthood, that in four years' time, it has doubled the amount of people who say they're LGBT. So I, I want us to recognize something. Like, there is a trend as our culture progresses forward. It's moving further and further away from the scriptural view of sexuality. And I understand that. And I think when it comes to, if I could just speak for a little bit on the church and the LGBT community. Um, what I have seen and witnessed uh, in regards to the church in this community um, has really left um, me wanting. 
What I have seen the church's perspective and the church's response to the LGBT community and even the movement that we've seen in our culture, um, I, I think honestly has done as much damage as anything else. Because one of the things that I've witnessed is I've seen uh, people in the church who love Jesus, but at the same time, that they can turn around and, and spit out the most hateful and vitriol uh, language that I've ever heard toward the LGBT community. And I'm just telling you, it's not right. It is not right. And can I just say, if you're here and you're gay, lesbian, bi, you're part of the LGBT community, I want you to hear me say this. We're glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. You're welcome here. And we want you here. And oh, by the way, God loves you as much as he loves anybody else in this church, regardless of their sexual identity. I want you to hear me say that, okay? And I want to apologize on behalf of all the churches and the people that have followed Jesus and have been hateful, spiteful, have dehumanized you, have have caused you to feel less dignified as a human. Can, Can I just apologize on that behalf? Like, that is not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God at all. And yet I know that this is a a big topic of conversation today. And so what I want to do with the remainder of our time is I want to address homosexuality. I I want to, next week we're going to talk about transgenderism. Today I I want to talk about homosexuality. And here's, when I say that, listen to me, um, I want us to address it with all the sensitivity that that it demands. Because I think one of the things that I've seen is that the church sometimes has held this like some kind of issue to debate rather than seeing that it's people to be loved. And, and so I, I think we can walk through, this is the tension that we talked about week one of what does it look like in all of these things to live with grace and truth? What, what does it look like to know how to love and to serve? Can you imagine, I just want you to think for a moment, okay, and if you're not gay, then, then I want you to, this is the important thing, put yourself in the shoes of someone who is gay. Can I, can I just tell you how scary it would be to walk into any church? How hard would it be to go into a place where all you've ever heard maybe from people who've been there is that you're not welcome and that God doesn't really accept you and love you? And so I wanna say, if you're here and part of the LGBT community, um, I I'm grateful that you would actually trust us enough to come and be part of this community. I just wanted to say that. I really. And so I want to address this with all the sensitivity that we can. And and as we do that, I want to say this. Language matters. Language absolutely matters. And so as we talk about this, there are two basic uh, kind of responses to homosexuality that most people want to know when, when they come to a church or they meet you if you're a Christ follower. These are the two basic. They want to know, are you affirming or are you non-affirming? I don't, have you ever heard those terms, right? They're pretty popular in, in like uh, culturally understand maybe what they mean. Let me just, if you don't know, affirming would be that you hold a position that to be, uh, that homosexuality is okay, it's acceptable in the eyes of God, okay, and in, in, in the eyes of scripture. Non-affirming, okay, which is a little bit more of the historic view, would say that believes that scripture uh, would believe it's a sin, okay? Now, let me just say this. I don't like these two terms. I don't like the terms affirming and non-affirming. Let me tell you why I don't like them. The reason why I don't like them is not because they're not clear, but because they often have come with a lot of cultural baggage. 
Like, when I think about how the world and the church has responded to uh, homosexuality, here's my um, concern with these two terms, is I actually see the way followers of Jesus have responded kind of fits more on a spectrum than it does one or two camps. It's not just binary, one or two camps, right? And, and I want to point this out, and here's why I'm always leery. I might use these terms, but I, I'm, I'm very leery to use these terms as much as possible. It's because I have seen those who claim to be non-affirming do not believe it's okay. I have seen people in the non-affirming position in camp be the ones that have no problem standing and protesting, holding signs that says, God hates gay people and you're going to hell. Can I just tell you, I don't want to be associated with those people. I don't want to be associated with them. Okay, so this is why I, I kind of like, I don't like these terms because of the baggage. In, in the same, I've seen it on the other extreme where those who say they're affirming say, you should be allowed to do anything and everything you want. Whatever sexual behavior, should, none of it is off limits. You should do whatever you want. I also, if I would be affirming, would not want to necessarily be in that camp. And so what I've seen is that those extremes don't actually represent most people that are good and have a heart and just love people and want to know, what do I believe about? about these things. And so I don't love these. In fact, I'll give you two other words that will maybe lean toward, which is progressive or historic. Progressive view is the view that would be affirming that says that progressive says that um, here's what it would hold, that it's okay for someone to have a loving, committed, same-sex relationship, monogamous even, okay? It's progressive. Historic would be the view that I talked about earlier, which would be the scriptural view, the traditional view of sex between a man and a woman. The idea is in, in for marriage, for procreation, and for building marital bond, okay? So these are the two kind of polar extremes when it comes to this subject. Now, I wanna talk about this in light of scripture, because that's what we're here to do. What does scripture have to say about homosexuality? And here's what I know some of you are thinking in your head right now, because when I talk to people, this is the response I often get. It's really clear, isn't it? I mean, come on, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's just all throughout Scripture, and it's just all in there. It's just, come on, it's really clear, isn't it? Like, we've known for a really long time what Scripture has to say about homosexuality. To that, I would say, it's actually far more complicated than you might imagine. This is a very complex matter, and it is a complex conversation happening today in light of Scripture and the cultural, in which, the cultural time in which it was written. And so this is far more complicated than you would imagine. In fact, if I just ask, I don't want you, you don't have to answer out loud, how many places in Scripture do you find it speaking about homosexuality? Surely it's all over, right? Well, it's actually not. There's only six passages in all of scriptures that even reference homosexuality. Six, okay? And I, I want to show you what those six are in the Bible. I want to put them up right now, okay? Th these are the six passages in the Bible, the entire Bible, that make any reference whatsoever to homosexuality. These six. Now, I would go so far as to say there's actually only five. Why would I say there's only five? Because I want to show you the complexity of this, and we're going to dive into a little bit of complexity today so I can show you it, right? Genesis 19, you can scratch off the list. Genesis 19 is a terrible, terrible example in Scripture of addressing the current conversation 
of homosexuality today. Why? Well, because this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Which, by the way, there have been a lot of Christians that have used this to talk about how homosexuality is such an abomination to God that God is going to rain down fire and brimstone and burn every single... Can I just tell you, um, scholars that are both affirming and non-affirming, historic and hold a progressive view, all agree this is a terrible passage and has nothing to do with the current conversation about homosexuality. Okay, the idea that an entire town where every man in the town wants to gang rape two visitors that show up in the town that day does not even make sense in today's current conversation. On top of that, this is not about homosexuality. It's about abuse, it's about power, and it's about inhospitality. These are the themes of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we can just throw that out. So now we're down to five. And oh, by the way, out of the five, only one of them addresses women. Okay? And so, I, I, isn't it clear? Isn't it clear? Well, some would argue it's not that clear. It's, it's, it's more complicated than you think. Here's what I want to do for sake of time today because um, I don't have another five hours, unless you do. Yeah, okay, I didn't think so. So, um, what I want to do, we're just going to tackle the tip of the iceberg today. I want to just zoom in on just one of these passages in Romans chapter 1. This is kind of probably the most popular passage. It happens to be the only one that includes women in this conversation, which is important. In Romans chapter 1, I'm going to look at just a few verses, but we're going to do it in context. Now, let me say this before we go into it. It's really easy to take certain things in the Bible out of the context from which they come and build the wrong idea, the wrong theology on it. Let me just tell you about Romans 1. Romans 1, starting in verse 18 through end of Romans 3, is all part and kind of go together. The Apostle Paul was building an argument. Here's his argument. That the religious and the irreligious, that the Gentile and the Jew, the God-fearing and those who do not fear God, here's what he makes this argument by the time we get done. All of us are screwed up and we all need God's saving grace. That's Romans 1 through Romans chapter 3. All of us, okay? So it's in light of all of that that Paul, he kind of zooms in. And so he's building an argument. Chapter 1, he addresses the Gentile Greco-Roman culture that is godless, that is irreligious. That's what he addresses first. And then in chapter 2, he addresses the Jews. Chapter 3, at the beginning, he addresses the religious leaders. And he says, we've all fallen short of God's glory, his mark of perfection, Romans 3.23. Okay, this is the argument he's building. We all are saved by grace. And I think that is really important to keep in mind when we talk about this one particular issue. Okay? We all need God's grace. And so I want to dive into it. I want to read um, Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 20 through 27. And then we're going to have a conversation about it. It says this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Here's what Paul's saying. Um, we should be able to just look around and say, because there is something, it seems there is a God. Okay, he's kind of making a base argument for there's a creator. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, he says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. He's talking about mankind. 
and they exchanged, it's a big word, the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They started worshiping images, not the one true creator. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. And we're gonna come back to that in one of the arguments because some say that this is what he's talking about. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged, there's that word again, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. It says, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed sinful acts with other men and received them in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, this is kind of the, the big passage that addresses homosexuality in Romans chapter 1, okay? One of the three in the New Testament. And here's the thing that I, I want us to understand. Here's the argument Paul's trying to make. Paul's saying that from the beginning, we all kind of have to answer to a God because we're here and we look and we, we see all creation. There's, everything in creation points to a designer. That's what he's saying, okay? It points to a creator. However, man has decided to move away from worshiping the creator to worshiping created things. And actually set up images and uh, idols, things in the form of humans and things on earth to worship rather than the creator. And it says, therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires. Here's what I want us to understand. God always gives us a choice. God, from the beginning in the garden... When he create, put a tree in there and said, don't touch this, he always gives us a choice. And here's what he said. Here's what mankind has done. We have chosen, we've chosen to pursue our sinful desires over God's design. That's the main point he's making. Man, mankind, men and women, have chosen to pursue their own sinful desires over God's design. So God said, fine, I'll let you go. If you want that, you can do that. And this is what Paul says that it has led to today. Now, I think sometimes when we read the scriptures like that, I think it'd be easy to say, well, that seems pretty clear, Pastor. I mean, it's right there, black and white. It's, it's, I mean, what's so confusing about that? Why is it complicated? And, and I would just say that if we're gonna talk about something as important as people's lives, their sexuality, who they are, their identity, we cannot just take a simplistic approach to it. In order to understand this, we have to unpack the stuff behind it, and we have to address the arguments against it. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to address three of the most common progressive arguments to this passage speaking against, or this passage being a non-affirming passage of homosexuality. And I, wanna, and I wanna show you what they are because here, here's what I know. There's a lot of gay people that as I read Romans 1, they would say, well, that doesn't sound like me. I get that. I bet it doesn't. There's a lot of people that read that and go, all this, the, the shameful lust and all this, I, that's, not, that's not me. That's not my heart, and I understand that. And so I, I want to address what I think are the three most common, and there's more, of the progressive arguments to this non-affirming or this historic view of sexuality for Romans 1. Uh, the three most common I've seen are this idea of excessive lust. Paul seems to talk about having these passions and giving over to them. Maybe it's those who have excessive lust. Another one is idol worship. Okay, and we're going to talk about that. And then exploitative sex. 
Is that what Paul is referring? Not a loving, committed, monogamous, same-sex relationship that we see bear out today, okay? And so I wanna address these three, and I think it's really important because these are probably the three biggest arguments to what this passage says. First, when it comes to this idea of excessive lust, here's what some people have suggested. It's clear that Paul is talking about um, those that have passions. He uses the term, those who God gave them over to their lustful passions. And some would say that um, when even heterosexuals are inflamed with lust to a, a degree that has just overtaken their bodies, that they would actually begin to uh, move to beyond gender from just if it's a man to a woman to another man, that they're basically, they're gonna have sex with anybody and anything they can, okay? And, and, and here's what I wanna say in response to that argument. First of all, I would say for the most part, that doesn't bear out in reality. We, we know a lot of people that have wrestled with sex addictions and other things, but rarely have we ever seen people with like so inflamed with lust that they go from being heterosexual to homosexual. Like that's, that's something that's very rare to see that that happens. That's not common. On top of that, Paul includes in this conversation women. And according to uh, Greco-Roman writing all around the time of Paul, there's no incidences whatsoever of women expressing these kind of excessive lusts. It's always been written in terms of men. On, on top of that, um, Paul uses interesting language, okay? Paul uses a term when he says that women exchange natural relations for unnatural he uses this Greek term, it's actually a compound word, it's called paraphysin. It's two words, against nature. And what Paul is referring to in this is not the lust that is the, not the passion that is the problem, but it's the actual going against nature, the exchange of, of natural and unnatural. That is what Paul is speaking to. And so here's what some would say. Some have suggested that these excessive desires inside of someone actually take control of their body to the point where they do things that are outside of what is acceptable. Here, here's the problem I have with this, this view. That's not what Paul said. That's not what he said. Yeah, Paul talked about passions, but that's not what Paul was speaking against. Paul was speaking against the exchanging of natural relations for another. In other words, Paul's not speaking against the desire. He's speaking against the action. And the language he's using. Now, why is this important? Because here's what we know about biblical study. Is that you should never read into it something you think that you want them to say to exegete, okay? Exit. This is, is to pull out of it what they're actually saying. And so I, I think that this argument to me falls a little bit short, the excessive lust argument, um, because it's just not there. It doesn't, it's not there scripturally. Paul's talking about the act. Okay, and on top of that, I want you to know this. Paul does not, in any shape or form, and in the New Testament, condemn same-sex attraction. In the same way that you can have attraction that is heterosexual, that could lead to sinful behavior, or it may not, 
Somebody could have a same-sex attraction that may or may not lead to sinful behavior. And so I think it's really important to understand that as we look at this. So excessive lust is one of the arguments. Another one is the idea of idol worship. Now, where did this come from? Well, there was a pagan practice that was kind of known in that time, is that in some forms of idol worship, they would have temples, and that they would actually um, involve sex acts and sometimes homosexual acts. Okay, there was temple prostitutes. There were people that would people could pay, and it would be part of kind of instead of offering as an act of worship in these pagan things. And so, some people have held this argument. Paul is talking about they exchange worshiping God for worshiping created things. I, I wonder if this passage is referring to people who are engaged in idol worship, not people who are loving, committed, monogamous, same-sex relationship. This is the apples and oranges. This is this is the argument, right? Um, to that, I, I, would, I would have a couple challenges, okay? Number one, this was common in Paul's day, and yet Paul does not specifically call it out. In fact, the terms and the language that Paul uses are really general and broad, and it covers all forms of same-sex acts, all forms. So Paul actually uses this broad language. Paul knew about this kind of idle behavior. Paul could have specifically said something about this. He did not. And on top of that, I just want to point out, and I stopped at verse 27, but if you kept reading in this full argument that Paul's making, by the way, he lists a whole lot of other sins. And I think it is important to make sure we we see all of those because the church is often zoomed in on one or two and kind of have a blind eye to all the other ones. Paul can include all of them. And so look, here's what Paul said in, in verse 29 through 31. They become filled. There's some of the the people who are depraved. He said they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy. What does that have to do with idol worship? It doesn't. Paul's including a lot of other sins here. He says murder, huh? Strife, deceit, malice. Oh, and they're gossips. So if you like to gossip, you're in this list, okay? Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Okay, what, what I'm trying to point out is that it doesn't seem like Paul is only addressing forms of idol worship. It seems like Paul is addressing all these kind of practices that are outside of God's intent and design when he created mankind. And, and so to me, this whole argument of idol worship, again, it, it falls a little bit short when I look at this in context. Now let me give you the third one. The third one is this, um, exploitative sex. Now, uh, this is a big argument that people make. It really is. To understand their culture, the Greco-Roman culture versus our culture today, it's really hard for us to understand this. You have to study it to understand this. Okay, in the Greco-Roman culture, there was quite a bit of um, same-sex practice that happened that did not mean in that day you were um, homosexual. It didn't mean that, okay? Uh, Understand this, like masters that had slaves would often abuse their slaves sexually, whether they men or women. It was about power. It was about coercion. It was about reminding you whose property you are. This happened quite a bit. On top of that, in this, there was also, this happened from one class to the other. 
They had different levels of classes. And the higher classes would sometimes abuse, especially men would abuse boys in a lower class to remind them of their class. And they would take advantage. This was a power dynamic that existed in this culture. It was a very real thing that happened. On top of that, there, there was a practice that was kind of known in this day and it's thankfully not really practiced very much today, but in this culture it was. It was called pederasty. Have you ever heard of pederasty? It was the idea of men having sex with boys. And it was, again, related to power. It was related to um, idol worship. It was related to all kinds of forms that men would have sex with boys before they reached puberty. And, and this, is all, this was all going on in this day. So here's this argument. This is who Paul is talking about. Not a loving, committed, monogamous, same-sex relationship. That's not what Paul's talking about. The challenge I have a little bit with this is that, um, number one, Paul doesn't mention pederasty, and it was clearly understood then. They had the Greek language for it then. He could have. That term existed in the Greek. Paul could have called it out. He does not call out pederasty. Why? Because he used general language that included it and others. Okay. On top of that, Paul addresses a mutual lust that men had for one another. See, pederastic relationships were one person toward the other. It never went both ways, okay? And here's Paul addressing this, and when he addressed the men, he said that men were inflamed with lust for one another. It was mutual. They both felt the same way toward each other. And then again, keeping in this in context, Paul addresses women. Nowhere in Greco-Roman culture, nowhere is there any example of women abusing their power sexually. There's no examples of it. I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about any Greco-Roman literature that exists. Why? Because for the most part, women didn't have the power to abuse. And so what's fascinating in these arguments is that you have to look in. And, and so what I just shared really quickly, and some of you might be going, uh, uh, I just, my mind is, I don't know what to do with all this. I understand that. But part of what I wanted to do in just addressing this a little bit is I wanted to help us all realize that this is complicated. You cannot take a simplistic approach to a few verses in the Bible. You have to dive deeply into them to understand when you're talking about a sensitive subject like this. And so as I have studied and I've read books I've read books that are both progressive and historic by scholars. I've studied the scriptures for myself. I, I want to share kind of where it's led me. As I, and I, and I pray that you receive this today with all the truth and the grace that I have. But when I look at biology, when I look at the purpose of sexuality, when I look at the way scripture speaks of sexuality, including the way it addresses a homosexuality in there, I believe that scripture supports the historic view of sexuality. This is what I believe. Scripture supports. What does that mean? That scripture supports the non-affirming view of sexuality. This, this is what I believe scripture shows us. And I have wrestled, and, and listen, and I, and I just wanna say, this in this is where I feel the most tension inside of me. I feel this tension inside of me as a person, as a pastor, when it comes to this topic. Because I, I can only imagine if you're here, you're part of the LGBT community and you found people that seem like they love you and accept you and to hear 
that scripture would say something maybe that you have felt from the earliest moments you can recall. Um, that maybe you have felt like from the earliest time of puberty or whatever that you feel like your only attraction is to the same sex. That can be very hard to hear. And this is the, the tension that I live with inside of me, even as a pastor, as a person, I think we all need to as a Christ follower, is that I feel like scripture seems to hold this historic or non-affirming view of sexuality. At the same time, I know that there's some people that I know and some friends and people in our community that are awesome people and they really seem to love God and yet they feel that they're same-sex attracted or gay and maybe even in a relationship. And I, I just feel this tension. I don't know if you feel it, but I do. And my heart really does break. I, I, I can't imagine what it'd be like and the stories of so many people who for so long have maybe tried to get rid of some feelings and they just can't, they don't go away. And I can imagine that if you're here and you're gay and you, you have to wrestle with following your feelings or following Christ in this regard when it comes to sexuality, that's a hard thing. And let's not do, here's what church loves to do, let's just compare that with every other thing that's out there. It's not the same. It's not the same. And, and so I, I, my heart really does break and, and here's what I would say. I, I think all of us need to, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're gonna have some kind of opinion in this area, here's what I wanna challenge you with. Make sure at first you do the hard work of understanding the complexity of this conversation. I find there's a lot of Christians that love to be real vocal and have a real opinion about this, but you don't actually know the arguments. You don't know them because some of them are pretty, some of them make a lot of sense. I've had to walk through them, wrestle through them. And one of the things that I, I wanna do, and I, I really believe in this for our community, is I'll, I'll share some resources with you that me and a lot of the pastors have walked through together, and, and you, can, you can read them yourself. In fact, I wanna give you two of them today. Maybe some other ones, but I, uh, my absolute favorite book that I've read from a scriptural perspective is this book by Preston Sprinkle called People to be Loved. And one of the things I love about this, and I mean love about this, is that Preston Sprinkle, he is a, um, he's a guy who was a pastor, he's a scholar, but he also, when he was writing this book and he wanted an honest, I wanna know what the Bible really says, not what I've been told. And he spends half of his time building relationships with people in the LGBT community, real authentic relationships to know them, to have dinner with them, to become friends with them. The other half studying scripture and it changes your perspective. His tone is beautiful. The way he addresses it, the questions that he still has, I just, I, I understand, I understand. There's a lot of questions and I still have a lot of questions, okay? And so this book I recommend. And then another one that I'm gonna, I'm gonna put on the recommended list is a book by Justin Lee called Torn. This is a book by someone who is gay. And this is a book by someone who ended up with a progressive view. You say, how in the world are you gonna recommend both a, a historic and a progressive view book? I am because I trust, I trust that you're intelligent. I trust that you know the spirit of God like I know the spirit of God. I trust that you can actually go and read. And sometimes when you read these books, you'll go, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, but that makes a lot of sense. Oh, but I, that's a good point. 
Oh, but that's a good point. And I've had to wrestle through them. And here's what I would say is complex as this, and here's what I know. I doubt there's anyone in here that doesn't have a friend, a family member, a coworker, or somebody in your circle who's gay. I doubt it. We all do. And I want to know how to love people, even if I maybe hold a different view than they hold when it comes to this. I, I, at the end of the day, I believe Scripture holds a historic or non-affirming view of sexuality, including homosexuality. I really do. But I, I, want, to, I want our church to resemble the heart of God when it comes to this. And again, if you're here and you're part of the LGBT community, I hope you come back next week. And I hope you come back the week after that. And I want you to know that you're loved, that God loves you, that God sees you, that God cares about you. And I just pray that your heart continues to fall more and more in love with Jesus. And I'm gonna trust the Holy Spirit to do what he does in all of us. Because that is a big old list that I read at the end of Romans 1. And it includes all of us. And the last thing I'll say to our church, and then I'm gonna close, is how dare we ever get to a point where we in the church have had such a condemning nature of someone in the LGBT community. See, Paul would not even allow that. That's why when Paul finished with his list in Romans 1, and he's writing to the Christians in Rome, Paul goes to Romans 2, verse 1, important. Never forget it. Oh, it's a different chapter. No, this was all together. Paul said, you may think you can condemn such people. Remember that big list? Many of which included us and all those things. But you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself because we all are guilty under the law. All of us have sinned and fallen short. You're condemning yourself for you, for you who judge others do these very same things. In other words, our posture as followers of Jesus is not to condemn. I, I want to share truth that I see in scripture with our community but I wanna do it with all the grace in the world and just say as, as much as we can as your pastors, we wanna help you and walk through it. Any decisions you make, we're gonna love you regardless. We're gonna care for you. We're gonna show you what Belief Scripture says and we're gonna trust the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Amen? Amen. Come on, let's pray today. God, I am so grateful that we can be a community that is so deserving of your, undeserving of your grace. All of us. Lord, um, I pray that you would begin to heal the relationship that the church and the LGBT community has had. I, I pray, God, that you would change our hearts for those maybe that aren't affected by this. God, to be filled with empathy, to, to see, God, what it must be like for someone else who wrestles with these things. I, I pray, God, for an extra measure of empathy for our community in general. Lord, I pray for those who are LGBT who are here. I thank you that they're here. I pray, God, as they wrestle with this, as they, as they read your word, as they pray, as they seek after your heart, God, to know how should I live? How do you want me to live today? I pray, God, for grace. I pray for wisdom. I pray, God, you would lead them. And Lord, I just pray in all of these matters that we reflect the heart of Jesus to the world around us. And I pray people are drawn to this community because they find people that will love them the way Jesus, you love us. Lord, I thank you for, for the grace over my life. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. All of us are. And so God, thank you for your grace over my life and over our community. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said?
Come on, can we thank God for his grace today? We all need it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this message. I hope that it encouraged you and inspired your faith. If God is doing something in your life, would you take a moment and let us know? We wanna connect with you and we wanna be able to pray for you. All you have to do is shoot us an email to hello at the x.church or you can always send us a DM on one of our social media platforms. And if you know somebody that would also be encouraged by this very message, why not take a moment and just share it with them right now? And as always, I wanna say thank you to every single person who so generously financially supports this ministry so we can continue to get messages like these out to people all over the world. We believe God is building something special and you're a significant part of it. Until next time, have a great day.